Welcome back to another episode of All Else Equal. We wanted to do something slightly different before the election, so we brought in the chair of political science, David Campbell, to talk with us about religion, politics, and the upcoming election. Before we get into our conversation with Dave, uh, we wanted to acknowledge the tragic deaths of Olivia Rojas, Valeria Espinel, and the hospitalization of Eduardo Elise Calderon. Um, that occurred this past weekend um, at Notre Dame. And this has been an incredibly difficult semester for everyone involved, and it's, uh, I guess, extraordinary in some dark and terrible sense of the word that this could have happened. We know the words to express how sad we are for this loss for the families, friends, and members of the Notre Dame community who have been affected. Uh, for this semester more generally, I, I guess there have been some silver linings, but we aren't going to patronize you by preaching about looking on the bright side. Instead, we'd just like to take a moment of silence in honor of Olivia and Valeria's memories. This was truly a terrible event on top of a semester that has already been more challenging than Forrest and I ever thought and have ever experienced. But we're going to persevere and finish strong because that's what the Notre Dame community does. And so with that digression, um, let me just say a little bit more about today's guest, David Campbell. Dave's the Packy J.D. Professor of American Democracy here at Notre Dame, is the chair of the political science department. We're super grateful that he agreed to talk with us about his book, American Grace, his upcoming book, Secular Surge, and the current election. Uh, so with that said, um, let's welcome Dave. Hey, David. Thank you so much for being here. Appreciate you uh, joining us and talking uh, kind of about the economy today. I am more than happy to do this. This is going to be fun. Great. So uh, we'll start off with an easy question. Who's going to win the presidential election? <laughs> wait a minute. <laughs> Actually, wait, we're going to wait. We'll pause on that until our formal segment of predictions sure to go wrong at the end of the <laughs> podcast. Uh, we'd love to start by asking you about your 2010 book with Robert Putnam, American Grace. Can you tell us a bit about the political landscape a decade ago and the role that religion played in politics? Sure. Um, American Grace, as you mentioned, was published about 10 years ago. But it actually came out of the 2004 presidential election. That's when Bob Putnam and I first started talking about writing a book that would cover religion and American politics, but also an American uh, civil society. And the reason that the 2004 election was so important is religion figured very prominently in that race, um, particularly because at the time there was a lot of opposition to same-sex marriage and that was an issue that was on a lot of state ballots, ballot initiatives, and the George W. Bush campaign piggybacked on a lot of those uh, ballot initiatives because at the time, opposition to same-sex marriage was seen as the, the winning side of that issue. Of course, that's changed. That's a remarkable sea change in American politics, but at the time, you know, that was the climate. And that kind of led us to ask, well, how is religion working its way through American politics? It's a topic I'd been interested in in the past and I'd worked on a little bit, but the book enabled us to really focus for a few years on what is a pretty big question. So we covered a lot of different things in that book to try to understand how religion affects American civic life. And so kind of thinking about, so this is being recorded on October 29th and we're less than a week away from the election. How have things changed um, since you wrote the book? 
Well, I would say that the biggest change has been a growth in the uh, secular population. In fact, I'm just about to publish a book in the next few weeks on exactly that topic called Secular Surge. And that's with uh, Jeff Lehman, who's also here at Notre Dame, and John Green, who's at the University of Akron. Um, in American Grace, we did document that there was a rise in the number of people saying they have no religious affiliation. They're sometimes called the nuns because they, when are asked their religious affiliation, they choose none. Uh, but that's really accelerated in the years since we published that book. But perhaps even more importantly, there's been a growth, not just in people who say they have no religion, but people who are what we call actively secular. Um, and that is really transforming the American religious landscape, but also the civic landscape. Does actively secular mean like you, you purposely and like plan on doing different activities when people normally go to church? Um, like, yes. <laughs> it'd be like me and Jason decide like we are actively going to plan on playing Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> instead of going to church <laughs> on Sunday morning. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so we actually categorize people into, you know, sort of different groups, depending on loosely speaking what they might be doing on, on a Sunday morning or maybe a Friday evening, of course, depending on which tradition you're talking about. Um, and the people we call secularists are people who have found substitutes for religion. That doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, on 11 a.m. on Sunday morning, they're doing secular things. They're certainly not going to be found in church, usually, or in other places of worship. Um, but more broadly, in their lives, they have found replacements for religion. They don't think in religious terms. They derive truth and meaning in their life from secular sources, not from religious sources. I, I, so I, I, I think this is really interesting um, kind of phenomenon that's developing is in the book, um, I don't know if you can give us a preview. Do you connect this back uh, to one political party or is there kind of, you know, maybe in addition, is there kind of a geographic dispersion? Um, so let me talk about the geography for a second. There's less of a geographic dispersion than you might think. So it is true that secular people are more likely to be found in the Pacific Northwest, up in the Northeast of the country, less likely to be found in the Deep South and in Utah and in the upper Midwest. Those are the more religious parts of the country. But if you look at the growth in secularism, it's actually been pretty even across those areas. So, um, you know, they start at different baselines, but the growth rate is roughly the same around the country. Now, as for um, political parties and the role they play in this story, um, one reason that we've seen a growth in the secular population has been an allergic reaction to the religious right, which of course is affiliated with the Republican Party. So a lot of people, um, especially millennials, uh, they have dropped their religion. That is, they don't want to be thought of as religious because of their politics, because they see religion as tied up with the Republican Party and they know they're not Republicans. And so to them, to say you're religious is to say you're Republican, but they're not Republican, so therefore they must not be religious. And we're not the only people to make that argument. Um, I'd like to think in the book, we kind of present it definitively because we use all sorts of tests to see whether or not that really is the case. Um, it seems to be kind of a growing consensus among those of us who study this sort of thing. But that yeah, doesn't- I, I'd love to know how we should think about determining causality there. And, but before maybe we ask you kind of a more that weedsy question, like have Democrats tried to take advantage of this surge? That is the second half of the story. So the short answer to that is 
no, or at least the Democrats are somewhat ambivalent about this growing secular population. Now, in terms of their political preferences, most of those secular folks are going to line up with the Democrats, at least in a two-party system. So most of them are pretty far to the left. Um, that puts them you know, in the Democratic camp. Within the Democratic camp, they're more likely to be, say, Bernie Sanders supporters or Elizabeth Warren supporters than uh, sort of the more moderate you know, Biden, uh, Clinton-type uh, Democrats. However, what you don't find is an open embrace of the secular base, really, of the Democratic Party like you see the Republicans embrace the religious base of their party. And part of that, maybe most of that, is because the U.S. is still a pretty religious country. And Democrats, I think, are afraid of alienating moderate religious voters by being portrayed as, you know, the godless party or the party of the atheists, that kind of thing. And so I guess the, the idea is that they can, they can depend on the secularists voting against Trump no matter what. That's right. That's right. But I will also say we are quickly approaching a point where we are going to see more and more politicians, presumably Democrats, um, appeal to secular voters, figure out a way to do this. Bernie Sanders has actually started that. Um, I don't know if he did so deliberately, but Bernie himself is a pretty secular guy. Um, he was very open about it. It didn't really seem to hurt him. In the, in the primaries, either in 2016 or 2020. And if you look around the country, there are more and more candidates who have found ways to um, talk about science and reason in ways that definitely signal to secular voters that, you know, I get you without alienating religious voters. Because it's not like religious voters, or at least you know, many of them, are turned off by science. But to a secular voter, that sounds a little different. And so that might be a way that candidates can appeal to secular voters and do so without, you know, losing the, the religious uh, vote as well. So I, I, I want to back up maybe just a little bit here and talk about kind of how as kind of a country, we maybe were, um, we were uh, supporting candidates who were more secular. And then how did that kind of diverge into supporting candidates that were maybe more non-secular and then kind of why are we beginning to break off from this again? Well, I think the answer to that is up until roughly the mid 70s, maybe the early 1980s, um, you didn't really find much discussion of religion in American politics. Candidates didn't really talk about their own religion with one notable exception I'll address in just a minute. Um, because religion itself didn't divide people along political lines. So when Dwight Eisenhower was winning elections in the 50s by you know, huge margins, he was winning both church-going voters and non-church-going voters. And so to say that you were a churchgoer back in the 50s and the 60s, even through the early 70s, it didn't really tell me anything about your partisanship. We didn't see that God gap dividing the parties um, emerge really until the religious right became a factor in American politics. And that doesn't start until the late 70s through the early 80s. Now, of course, the one exception in at least kind of the modern political era of a candidate who was basically forced to talk about his religion was John F. Kennedy uh, being a Catholic. And of course, at the time, uh, there had been no Catholic president. However, he's kind of the exception that proves the rule because the opposition that he faced to his Catholicism 
was simply on ascriptive grounds. It was simply the fact that he was Catholic. It wasn't because of any particular policy views that he held. It wasn't even because he was a particularly devout Catholic. And devotion or the level of activity in the Catholic Church, none of that affected whether people voted for Kennedy. It was simply whether you were a Catholic or a Protestant, not whether you were a churchgoer or not. What's changed? I mean, are we just, you know, as a nation, it doesn't feel like we're sort of more politically or sorry, religiously inclusive. Is that true or? (laughs) Well, so by change, if you mean why did religion become a factor in our politics, um, it's really a kind of a classic story of a minority party seeking to expand its coalition. So for about a generation, two generations, the Republican Party was was the minority party in the country. That actually is still the case today, um, but there's greater parity now than there would have been in you know the 30s, 40s, 50s. So the Republicans needed a way to expand their coalition to bring more voters under their umbrella, and the way they did it was by creating a new issue agenda. That is by injecting new issues into the policy discussion that had not been there before. And those are the social issues that now are the bread and butter of American elections, things like abortion, um, women's rights, what used to be called gay rights. Now, of course, we call them LGBTQ rights. Um, if you go back even to the 1960s, those things were just not a part of the uh, the political discourse. And of course, now they are. Every candidate, you know, all the way <laughs> down from town councilor up to the president is expected to have a position on abortion. Well, when Kennedy ran in 1960, you can go read his famous speech where he addressed his Catholicism. He doesn't mention abortion once. Why? Because it wasn't an issue, or at least it wasn't an issue politically. Well, then you asked about whether we're more religiously inclusive now. That's a tougher question to answer. On on the one hand, we are in the sense that um, Americans actually do have a very high level of religious tolerance. Uh, That is, people of one faith are, believe it or not, quite accepting and tolerant of people of another faith or of those of no faith. That comes as a surprise to some people because they think of religion as this very divisive thing, but it's actually not the case in terms of our personal interactions. However, it can be quite divisive once you get into the political arena. So there's this great disconnect between the way people live religious tolerance in their lives. They have friends and neighbors of different faiths and it's no big deal. But then when we move into the political arena, we see religion being used as a real wedge to divide people. Yeah. So how much is the uh, like political polarization served as like a substitute for religious polarization? Well, I don't know if I'd say it was a substitute. I would say that the two kind of feed off of each other. It's almost like um, adding religion to political polarization is like adding gasoline to the fire. And so when we hear national politicians um, talk about their opponent, you know, not being a supportive of, of religion or the term that's often used is religious liberty, uh, which has become a very loaded term in our politics. Um, that is the sort of thing that can really ignite a lot of passion among people, um, almost ironically, because it gets people riled up politically while forgetting that, well, actually your friends and neighbors all come from different backgrounds as well and you're very comfortable interacting with them, but it's almost as though people kind of shut that off and then just focus on what's happening at the national level where there's this very heated discussion about you know, Amy Coney Barrett's Catholicism or whether or not she's being interrogated because of that Catholicism or whether abortion policy is being dictated by the Pope or that kind of thing. 
I guess I'm, you know, I'm also wondering a little bit, there seems to be, or at least there was with Mitt Romney, um, some effort to dislocate, you know, political, um, you know, policies and kind of governance along with Mitt's um, kind of Christian background. And something similar came up with Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, Why is it that some politicians continue to maybe embrace religion as a guide for making policies while others are kind of trying to make the distinction and separation between what they're trying to accomplish? Well, let's take those two in turn. So um, Mitt Romney had a nearly unique issue to deal with, and that is that he's Mormon or technically a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but that's 11 long syllables. So I'll just say (laughs) too long, Um, even though it turns out that's a bit controversial within Mormon circles. They generally don't like to use the word Mormon anymore, but I'm going to use it non-pejoratively. I actually come out of that world. So I feel like if anyone can say it, I can. That's okay. That's Um, right. (laughs) uh, In fact, I've also written a book about Mormons in American politics. Uh, It's not exclusively about Mitt Romney, but as you might imagine, he figures prominently in the book. And Romney, um, you know, he faced a lot of uh, opposition or at least concern to his religious background, which demonstrates that while the American religious landscape is somewhat inclusive, it is not fully inclusive. And so there are still groups like Mormons um, who are not fully accepted as part of the American mainstream which in the case of Mormons is highly ironic because Mormonism is a, an American religion. It was born in America. Um, yeah. It is associated around the world with America, but you know, that's, it, it still has never been fully accepted in some circles as even a Christian religion. Um, although that is highly offensive to Mormons themselves who will say, but we put the name of Christ in the name of the church. How could we not be Christian? <laughs> Um, so Romney has this unusual problem in that he's a very religious person. So you might think, well, well, that should be a selling point, at least among Republican primary voters, except he was religious in the wrong faith. And so when he runs in 2008 mm-hmm. and doesn't win the Republican nomination, um, he has to deal with his Mormonism. And he does so giving a speech very much like Kennedy's speech back in 1960, addressing his Catholicism, in which he says, well, I'm Mormon, but that doesn't mean that my religion is going to necessarily influence the decisions that I make. Um, But then he goes on in that same speech and tries to portray his Mormonism as having much in common with evangelical Protestantism. So he speaks very openly about his belief in Christ and his faith in Christ. Um, The speech wasn't a huge success, although I think it did managed to tamp down at least some concerns about his religion wasn't enough for him to win the nomination in 2008. When he runs again in 2012, he basically steers away from the religion question until we get to the general election. And there are some references here and there to his religious background, interestingly, as a way to counter the charge that he was this, you know, plutocrat, this rich guy who didn't care about the little people. If you remember, there was this gaffe that he made where he referred to 47% of the country and how he doesn't care about them. Um, And in order to backtrack from that, that's what was considered scandalous in 2012. We've we've come a long way or (laughs) sunk a long way. Uh, Anyway, to address that issue, to try to emphasize that, no, no, I care about everybody. He actually drew on his religion and said, you know, I'm from a religion that believes everybody's a child of God. I believe that all are equal. 
um, which was a very interesting pivot. Um, and data that I collected found that by the time we got to the general election in 2012, uh, Romney's Mormonism really wasn't a concern for voters um, anymore. It was never a huge concern um, for him prior to that. Really, the concern was concentrated among um, evangelical Protestants. But certainly by the time we get to the 2012 general election, that is the fall of 2012, even evangelicals were saying, uh, he's a Mormon, but he's not Obama. So we'll vote for him. So, along those lines of politicians embracing Christianity, can you please explain to me the Christian support for Trump? Uh, and maybe as like, as if I was a naive child <laughs> uh, or like if, if I'm a Christian parent supporting Trump, like how would I explain this to my kids? Like where some of Trump's behavior may be, I don't know, like inconsistent with Christian <laughs> teachings. Right. Uh, and I'm clearly asking for Jason here. Yes. <laughs> well, um, there has been and will continue to be a ton of work written on this question. How can it be that evangelical Protestants who prior to the rise of Trump said very clearly in public opinion polls and in lots of other ways that it was the moral character of leaders that they cared about most. And that sort of language came out of the... Um, the Clinton years, the Bill Clinton years. It's fascinating. And, uh, mm -hmm. Leaders in the religious right were very critical of Bill Clinton's personal behavior, um, and you know, in the end, of course, didn't didn't prevail with their opinion in in the public's view because most Americans said, "Yeah, Clinton's private behavior not great," but publicly, his performance as president has been fine. And so he leaves office, even after having been impeached over the Lewinsky scandal, with record approval ratings. Well, then we fast forward to the Trump years and, and what's happened. Well, that's gone out the window. And I have a bunch of data to show that, yeah, evangelical Christians now, they don't worry, or at least they say they don't worry about the, uh, the, the moral character of their um, leaders. But what they do care about are a set of very specific policy outcomes. Oh, can and, I pause just for a second? Yep. So like there is data that say, we don't care about the general moral character of our yep. leaders. We only care about issues, yep. like very specific issues now. Well, well, what the way the question is worded is, um, you know, do you think that uh, the, the, the moral and ethical behavior of a, of, of a president matters for their public performance in the office? It's and that's crazy. what they're saying. It's not yeah. a big deal. They're saying oh, it's, it's just, you know, their, their performance in office that matters, okay. which used to be the position that, you know, <laughs> a lot of secular people took during, during, or, you know, at least sort of non-evangelical types in the Clinton years. So, you know, again, I was saying in the Clinton years, it was, well, yeah, we're not really comfortable with having an affair with a White House intern, but the economy, the yeah. yeah, look at the economy, we're at peace, etc. cetera. Um, so why has that happened? Well, I think what we're watching is the transformation of what was a religious movement into a purely political movement. And so Trump is very transactional. In fact, he, and he himself uses that word and people around yeah. him use that word mm -hmm. to describe his relationship with the, um, the evangelical community and, you know, specifically with leaders of the religious right. And when he ran for office, he made no bones about it. I'm making you some promises that I'll deliver on. And, not in every case, but in many, including the nomination and now a confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett, but also Neil Gorsuch. Um, 
Trump has delivered, you know, his, his major promise was I will put pro-life justices on the Supreme Court. He's done that. And then, you know, he made a few other promises to that community that he has delivered on and then others that he hasn't necessarily delivered on, but he still talks about to sort of reaffirm that he, he cares about the issue. So he moved the American embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. You'd think that would matter to Jews. Um, it does a little bit to the Jewish population, matters a lot more to evangelical Christians. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> uh, so I, I, at first I thought maybe if uh, President Trump was uh, not reelected um, in a week or so, that it would lead to some sort of political creative destruction for the Republican Party. But, you know, in the in the middle of this conversation, it feels like that's not true at all, that they'll continue to kind of embrace this transactional relationship. Do you see it that way? Um, I, I just on the narrow question of whether there will continue to be a transactional relationship with the religious right. Yes, I think that is clear. I think that the religious right has demonstrated that it is a political constituency. It will continue to be important. And I think Trump has shown other politicians who themselves may not be part of that world how to win their votes. And there's a great irony in that you, you could make a credible case that Trump delivered more to the evangelical community than George W. Bush did, even though George W. Bush is himself an evangelical or is mm. really characterized that way. Um, now, what will happen within the Republican Party more generally should Trump lose on Tuesday? And not only should Trump lose, but should there be a true blue wave, which is what some people are, are predicting, many people are predicting. That is, you know, it's not just that the Republicans will lose the White House, they might lose the Senate, they could lose lots of state houses, they could lose further ground in the House. I mean, it could, it, this could be um, truly devastating for the GOP. I'll put an asterisk on that because we'll see how it all plays out. But that's certainly one very possible, maybe even likely scenario. If that happens, I think you will see a knife fight within the Republican Party over what happens next. Now, that usually happens when any party loses, but it will be amplified in the Republican Party because Trump came into the party as an outsider. And I think the future of the Republican Party will rest in the hands of those party elders who were there before Trump and now will live within the party long past Trump. So people like Mitch McConnell, for example, um, you know, will, will they go along with contest, you know, long contested legal battles over the election? Will they continue the sort of rhetoric that Trump has employed? I have a hunch that the answer is no, but- What, what are the odds that Kanye West grabs control <laughs> yeah, of the Republican party? Right. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I like a little crazy, so I think- <laughs> It just as a that. note, a, a disclaimer, you know, the All Else Equal podcast is not making any claim. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> that Kanye yeah. West is crazy. <laughs> he is, but we're not. <laughs> yeah. Um, so let me actually, let, let's get you to do a little bit of prediction before we uh, we go. We've taken up enough of your time. So that you mentioned there's either going to be Democrat or Republican in the White House, uh, you know, next week. We're either going to see a Democrat or Republican controlled Senate. Um we are going to assume that it's going to be a democratic controlled house. In what combination of these scenarios do we get the most polarization? And like, is, is religion a big factor in that or is it something else? Um, well, I think that the, if by polarization, we mean um, elected officials who have a hard time finding common ground. I think that 
a, a shellacking of the Republican Party by the Democrats, if I can use a word that Barack Obama made famous, um, probably doesn't help the polarization, actually. That, that's probably going to continue um, in Washington because um, it will mean that the Republicans remaining in Washington, those who held on to their seats or maybe who were newly elected, they are probably not going to be very moderate Republicans because the places where you'd expect moderate Republicans to do well are likely going to elect Democrats. Um, however, if you sort of look beyond what's happening in Washington and what's happening, you know, down in the in, at the local level in the country, um, you know, quite frankly, removing Donald Trump from the equation probably will serve to tamp down tensions within the country. So imagine an alternative universe where Mitt Romney was a Republican president rather than Donald Trump. We would have had a very different last four years, yeah. right? Um, you may not like Romney's policies. You might disagree with them vehemently on a variety of things, but you wouldn't have found a Republican like Romney. And I'm picking on Romney because he's sort of a you know quintessential establishment Republican type. Um, but you wouldn't have found him fanning the flames of division the way that Donald Trump has. You wouldn't have had him calling into question the legitimacy of an election, you know, all those sorts of things. And if that is removed from the equation, I think that we may very well see a return to quote unquote normal politics in the country. People are still going to disagree with one another, but maybe disagree on, on different things, not about fundamentals like whether an election is legitimate, for example. Well, with that sobering thought about, I'm just sort of thinking next week, are we going to be challenging the legitimacy of an election? I'm still imagining uh, Mitt Romney last four years. I'm, <laughs> I'm in a better, I'm a little bit happy place right now. I would support a Romney Kanye West uh, ticket? ticket in the future. Yeah, that's right. A little bit of crazy, a little <laughs> bit of establishment. Well, David, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate you um, taking the time to kind of school force and I and, and let everyone know kind of what we should be expecting with the political landscape. Well, I have uh, really enjoyed this. And let me also just congratulate both of you for doing this podcast. I think it's very commendable. And I uh, wish you well as you continue to, uh, to do this. Perfect. We're going to take that as an excuse to get you back on here. That's right. I'm happy <laughs> Thanks, to David. do it anytime. I really appreciate Dave uh, coming on, talking with us about something that's a bit out of both of our wheelhouses. This really seems like something we should talk about again once we know the results of the election. Yeah, more generally, let's shout out everyone that's been involved in this podcast this semester. We're super appreciative of everyone who's come on as guests and students who've supported us through you know, emailing questions or just shared kind words with us uh, you know, about this endeavor. It's really been inspiring, actually, to see how people have come together this semester in the face of adversity and tragedy. Well, that concludes another episode of All Us Equal, our student-centered podcast, and a silver lining for Jason and I. Uh, uh, No mention of silver linings? This one feels okay to mention. As always, feel free to email us at allelseequalpodcast at gmail.com.